Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Standard Age podcast, a casual conversation about the lives of entrepreneurs and those growing companies. This podcast has been a wonderful supplement to my apparel brand, Standard H, which serves up elevated casual automotive and travel-inspired apparel and accessories to you discerning car and watch lovers. It's been a blast recording these episodes, and if you like what you hear, please visit standard-h.com and sign up for our email list. Our recently revamped website not only hosts every episode of this show, but also allows you to explore the entire product assortment and our latest travel recommendations. As an email subscriber, you will then receive offers no one else is privy to, and I can promise it'll be well worth your while. Just hit pause real quick and hop over to standard-h.com to sign up. We'll be here waiting for you to hit play when you return. Watch collecting is often described as a journey, and along these roads of exploration, you may encounter independently owned brands you've never heard of creating some of the most incredible timepieces. If you're in search of these brands, look no further than Passion Fine Jewelry, owned by former Standard Age podcast guest Tim Jackson. Offering incredible timepieces as well as phenomenal customer service, Passion Fine Jewelry is California's largest independent watch dealer located right here in Solana Beach, just north of San Diego. There you will find Roger Smith, Gronfeld, Kudoke, Habring, Sarpaneva, Roman Gauthier, and many more. If you can't make it to California, visit passionfinejewelry.com for their entire offering online. This episode is also brought to you by Contonement. Contonement's flagship product, the Kerchief, is a perfect medium between a handkerchief and a bandana. Featuring iconic designs such as a Fender Stratocaster and the dashboard of a Volkswagen GTI, these utilitarian cloths are an item that should be a mainstay in your everyday carry. Tuck one in a back pocket or use one as a neckerchief. Visit them at Contonement Co. That's C-A-N-T-O-N-M-E-N-T dot co and use the code STANDARDH in all caps, no spaces, for 20% off their entire online shop. Now let's get to the show. Jonathan Siegel is someone I've wanted to interview for years. When Standard H launched, I had called his firm to see if they would mind me hosting an image of theirs on my website as the home served as an inspiration to the brand. They politely agreed, and even though the website no longer hosts that image, this conversation will be present instead. Jonathan has designed some of the most recognizable buildings in and around San Diego, Primarily characterized as brutalist architecture, his buildings' facades clad in concrete often house people as well as businesses. Labeled as mixed-use, the approach has been quite popular over the last couple of decades. However, not many are as aesthetically pleasing to me as Jonathan's creations. A funny thing about Jonathan is there may be several of you listening who already know of him for an entirely different reason, and that's his incredible car collection. He is shown at the Quail and has won several awards over the years. When we recorded this conversation, he had driven a 73-911RS in Chartreuse to work, which looks incredible, so you'll have to check out the Instagram post for photos. Needless to say, we dive into architecture, his cars, and even talk watches. I really love the analogy Jonathan comes up with comparing buildings to blue jeans, so let's just get into it. I'm your host, Wesley Smith. And you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for taking the time. Um, it's kind of been a long time coming, and a previous iteration of, of my website involved a blog with written uh, interviews, which we never got to, um, but it also hosted a photo of your house, the Cresta, in La Jolla, uh, which is one of my favorite builds. Thank you. Uh, Sorely missed that one. Yeah, so I... Um, yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast. Uh, we usually start with a little bit of background. Who was Jonathan in high school? He's a guy that barely got out of high school, but um, had a track scholarship that got me out to high school, got me to college. Oh, where'd you go? University of Idaho. It's the Harvard of the West. What is your event? I was a hurdler. My dad was an Olympic bronze medalist in 1960 in Rome. He was a 100, 200-meter runner. He was, no kidding. You know, number five in the world. That's incredible. Pretty crazy. Yeah, I was not that guy. I was fortunate to get out the, you know, get out of Manhattan Beach and get up to the Idaho and then come back to San Diego in '83. Okay, so where were you born then? Greenville, South Carolina. Both my parents were English. No kidding. So they emigrated over to the United States. He went to school at Furman University and then um, graduated and then did his deal and and got all over, moved all over the country and ended up in Manhattan Beach for high school. What what was sort of the music choice in in high school? What were you, what was coming through the speakers? Super Tramp. Yeah, yeah. I was just I was just watching. Um, uh, there was a, a documentary on Davis, not Clive Davis. Clive Davis. Yeah, last night it was amazing to see all the the genres he went through. But uh, sure, yeah. Super Tramp. There was Aerosmith. There was uh, Kiss. There was Cheap Trick. Um, Genesis. Yeah, Phil Collins. Yeah, Phil Collins. That was before Phil Collins, though. Okay. Actually, Phil Collins had just—that's right. In '76, he he had broken out, and it was Peter Peter Gabriel broken out. Phil Collins is still a Genesis. Uh, see, I'm a, I'm an '80s baby, so Invisible Touch is like uh, like one of the first albums I recall ever, ever hearing. Yeah, Peter Gabriel's pretty incredible. Oh like yeah, that was he was like the the John Lennon of the Beatles. You know, McCartney had the tunes. Yeah. Um. So. What inspired you to get into architecture to begin with? You know, I uh, sort of floundered through high school and, and um, got up to school. And, and then, you know, as a good Jewish boy, you're either a doctor or an attorney. That was back to Clive Davis, too, by the way. Uh, and we had to take a chemistry pre-entrance exam to see if you have enough chemistry to get into the chemistry class. And that didn't pass that so therefore i had to do pre-chemistry it's like no i'm not going to do this um and then in my the fraternity i was i was um, going to i built a little loft and for some reason i can't tell you exactly what um i decided to go into architecture all my whole world my whole life has been serendipity wow really crazy just just like stuff happens so did university of you said idaho idaho yeah it, did that have an architecture school yeah fantastic one actually it was like out of perfect storm, we had uh, a lot of people that were um, community college transfers from Southern California coming up to University of Idaho. My class had five people that were, you know, national level designers that came out of our school. It was a pretty amazing year, really amazing year. Yeah, wow, that's that's really cool. So then, how did you like? What was your first job then out of school? Um, so I, you know, again lived in Manhattan Beach, so I come back in the summer times and I work for. Uh, from Charles Kober I worked for, who was like the number one international, national uh, shopping center designer. Uh -huh. uh, and then um, Coy Howard, who was one of the top architects in the nation 
for just design. Right. Um, in Venice Beach, so we worked on the on the ocean. Jimi Hendrix fake. Jimi Hendrix would come by with his skates and his you know his pack and his guitar, and it was just crazy times. No kidding. Yeah. Wow, that's lived incredible. In, lived in Venice Beach when the shots went off all night. Oh yeah, it was it was pretty much crazy bill over there. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then came down here, San Diego, uh, the last summer. I worked for kind of a B architect just because the recession was on and I needed a job. And uh, then came back after college uh, was over and worked for a guy named Homer Delloy. And he was in the 50s, like, you know, one of the top three architects. And uh, commonly what happens in architecture is you do a couple great pieces of work and then all of a sudden, you're now the rainmaker talking to the clients, you no longer the designer, and then you get your designer. So if you have sort of great designers that come up, your work continues to get better, and if you have B designers, your work starts to falter, and you just become a rainmaker and a, a glad hander, and you're no longer the designer. It's kind of a tragic irony in architecture how that can happen. So when you were working with him, is he primarily residential or commercial? He was commercial. He did okay. the police building downtown when I was with him, which is probably one of the not so good buildings in downtown San Diego. Right. But for the time, you know, downtown was just a, just a hood. Right. Um, and they consumed all super block downtown because there's an earthquake fault that ran through it. We had to move the building out of the middle to the side. Oh, wow. So what was the impetus behind striking out on your own? Uh, I was, um, Homer was a great man. Um, he was a businessman too. And he said, Hey, you should move downtown. Go great. There's a, they're building some condos called park row. Um, and this was like maybe six months into working for him. Uh, and I said, well, you know, we don't have the 20% down. You know, we save money. My wife and I saved like 10 grand in six months. And um, Homer said, here, I'll, I'll go halvesies with you. So we went halvesies on a unit. Um, he never signed a document. It was really weird. He never signed an agreement. It was all handshake for him. And I got an agreement written up. Um, and uh, then the stress level was too high. So I moved out of his office and um, he freaked out. I paid him like a 10% return with no documentation, you know, saying that, paid him off, sold one of my cars that I started collecting um, and moved downtown. And then I was on CCDC's residence board because there were only a few residents there. Right. And I met a guy named Charles Cober, or Charles Tyson, sorry, Charles Tyson. And um, I said, hey, I want to show you my thesis. And he said, no, no, you don't want to do that. You want to be a developer. Buy this piece of land. So I bought a piece of land at uh, Katner and G and it started my development world. Got it. Cause you are, can you describe your business? Cause you are design build, right? No, we are architects that develop. Design builds a different deal. So if you came to a design build architect as a client, mm -hmm. um, the architect would draw the house and then go build it for you. That's not what we do. We don't okay. have any clients. We have no interest in fee architecture. Um, we, find a piece of property, we work out the, the parts. Um, since 2000, we've had no investors. So we do our own development, our own money, um, build the building without a general contractor. And then we have a management arm inside of our company of three people that then uh, lease up the stuff, then we manage it and take care of it. Got it. So then you find the tenants or how does that work? Yeah, well we do for rent housing. We don't do for sale. Um, and the tenants come to us because it's, you know, it's apartments. Right. Um, as far as the uh, commercial aspect, we tend to try and lease that out ourselves also. I mean, we're a very efficient uh, machine. Um, 
you know, we don't have like a job shack that's got 10 guys in it making paperwork to bog down everybody else. We're, we're you know, one or two guys in the job shack and we're on the site and yeah. we're trying to get buildings built. Yeah, super lean. Um, so what kind of drew you to this sort of mixed use space or w- was it any ad, uh, like advantage that stuck out in particular or is it just something you're drawn to? Or? Again, my, my whole life's been serendipity. So it's not like I planned anything. It's just sort of evolves and happens. Okay. Um, we typically were doing in the beginning, we're doing for sale housing condos, bad word lawsuit. We didn't never get sued, fortunately. Um, and then let's see, I'm going to say the fourth or fifth project we did, it started requiring a commercial aspect to it. And it's super important that, you know, your commercial aspect doesn't have a 7-Eleven in it, you know, or a bank or an ATM or a quickie mart or a t-shirt shop. It has something that's active that creates a soul of your building basically. And we've been very fortunate that the commercial elements in our buildings have been wonderful. Uh, restaurants, coffee shops, um, other elements um, that, that activate and, and enhance the building um, and its persona. Sure. How do you go about finding the crews to work with as far as the actual build goes? It changes. We try to keep the, keep the, um, the contractors that we've been working with, but, and we try to build one building a year. So over like the 32 years we've been doing this, we built 32 buildings. Oh, wow. Yeah. And a couple of times we've had, um, two buildings going at once, not fun, maybe three. Um, and then for like the last two years, we haven't built anything, which has been actually probably pretty positive for us. Right. Um, because you know the cost of things are going crazy, and you, you can't get people, and you got a building that's going on, and you can't get any doors. So if you can't get any doors, you can't finish the drywall. If you can't finish the drywall, those guys go away. Dominoes. Those guys go away. Getting them back. It's just this crazy vicious cycle yeah. of you need to get this kind of momentum going. Um, in the last two buildings we built um, three years ago, we had you know some concrete guys that were just interesting to say the least. You know promising they'll do this and actually doing that. And it wasn't positive. Sure. Your son, Matt, works with you. Did you recruit him or did he approach you? Matthew um, went to Francis Parker and then he had like a 3.4 and a very high SAT, like 13 or 1400 or something. And I remember his, um, his administrator that was supposed to help us, the counselor. Oh, you're never going to go to a tier one college. You'll go to a tier two or a B college. I looked at this guy and I said, I couldn't believe this. This is, you're supposed to be inspiring these guys. And Matthew took that, you know, he wasn't real happy about that. Right. Um, and then he said, I want to be an attorney. I go, well, great. If you're going to be an attorney, I'm not paying for college. You know, you're on your own there. And for some reason, he just decided to be an architect. Wow. And uh, he went, you know, applied for USC. And, you know, I don't believe that I had any influence whatsoever in getting in. He had a really beautiful portfolio of stuff he had done and uh, great grades and a great school. And he went to SC, um, graduated in five years and came back and he's been with me and, you know, really making magic and we work well together. You know, everybody has their moments, but we have very few um, um, unpleasant moments, shall we say. Um, And he's, you know, he's embraced and enhanced what we do. That's amazing. It is amazing. Um, It often takes years to find one's style. How did you go about, because you definitely have a style that, would you call it brutalist or how do you describe it? Okay, so correct on your statement, thank you. We do have a language. Our architecture has a language, which is a combination of very, you know, quite a few influences. The brutal 
is actually um, a French word meaning concrete. Mm. So when you think brutal, you think, you know, tough. That's what I always thought it was. Concrete's kind of tough. And, and some of the 70s uh, and 60s work um, was brutal, not brutal, which is the French one, but brutal and ugly and not really great. Um, our, I think our work is sublime and, and, and pretty and beautiful and has a, a real um, contrast of two things. That's the masculine and the feminine. Sure. Um, so, so the masculine would be the concrete, but we create um, the structure in a very feminine uh, way that is thin and pretty and graceful. So we like to build out of concrete. Um, it, it affords us to do certain things in a language manner that you can't do out of plaster and steel. So for instance, if you want a, a long, thin cantilever, you can do it in concrete, but you can't do it out of wood. It, it becomes much thicker and heavier, um, which leads you to a door to a sort of a different language. Sure. Um, but our language is made of what, three or four components, plaster, white, um, windows, black and clear, and then concrete. And yeah. uh, that's been the language you've dealt with, and it's it's worked. It's worked well for us. That's great. Yeah, I mean, I obviously love your buildings. They're they're unmistakable here in the San Diego landscape. That's for sure. Thank you. Um, a potentially a silly question. Uh, what are the not so obvious differences in design process and and overall approach that exists between something that's say four or five stories and then something that's like twenty? Well. The four and five story building <clears throat> may not lend itself to concrete because the, do the dollar efficiencies aren't there. So for instance, the building we're in now, which is the North Parker, um, has a concrete base and then has two stories of plaster on top. Could we have done it out of concrete? Yeah, it would have been as good, maybe not. Um, but as you go higher, um, the way you get there is through concrete. But you know, like the, the Cresta house that you referred to, that needed to be concrete to do what we wanted um, it was next to the ocean, so it needed that for longevity. Um, it's brutal, the, uh, the, um, the atmosphere there is. So uh, we just like the concrete. It's more expensive. Um, so when the you know, day's over, the margins are less, but it doesn't matter to us because everything we do is about the architecture. Right. And the, uh, the dollars follow. It's not the dollars leading the architecture. It's never been that way, and it never will be. Yeah, that's kind of my approach to apparel is, is build it to last, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know... Less is better on a certain, yeah. you know, playing field. But uh, are there any other architects still working today that you admire? Oh, there's quite a few, quite a few that I admire. Um, Anyone come to mind quickly? Well, you know, the, what do you admire him for? Um, David Baker does high-density housing up in San Francisco. Um, his architecture is great, but his language and his story is brilliant. Um, Tom Kundig is doing beautiful architecture up in Seattle yeah um, and Fougeron's doing wonderful architecture in, in San Francisco um, Dave Jameson is doing magic work back east um, there's there's people all over uh, Lake Flato I mean, there's just there doesn't seem to be a significant amount of great urban high-density housing mm. um, the languages you refer to is pretty bad and you can see it everywhere it's almost like um, like a pair of blue jeans that everybody can wear in any city, right? Right. Like why? What the, the, you need shorts in some cities and thicker pants in other cities, and so they should be catering to that. So if it's cold in Seattle, you want long pants that are thick, and if it's hot in in Miami, you want shorts that are nice and thin. Right. And everybody's got the same blue jeans in both cities. Right. So um, 
it's an interesting analogy, but yeah, it's just bad. I mean, it's like I, I was talking. David Jameson actually showed up the other day. Um, he was going to the Golden Door, and, and I said, "Look at this stuff. It's horrible." He says, "Dude, it's horrible in every city, in Europe, in the United States. It's just the way it's been forever." And I can't, I think back to like the twenties, when were there bad buildings built? I've never seen a bad twenties and teens building, right? Right. Turn of the century. Um, well, it's like design and cars, right? Because like they used to look distinguished and now they're all, I mean, because there's so many regulations. So right. I mean, that's a whole other conversation right. about fuel right. economy and aerodynamics and yada, yada, yada. But so architecturally, it, do you think that's a byproduct of chasing margin? I wish I had the answer because I've asked many people the same question. But if you go into, you know, small town um, anywhere in the United States, it could be Boston small town or it could be Des Moines, Iowa small town. You look at the stuff that was built from like the 1880s through the 20s, and it's beautiful stuff. Right. So it's not a kit of parts. It's not a Sears house. It's a beautiful building, and I don't know where that level of sophistication came from. And it's right. all about proportion and grace and ceiling heights, and maybe because it was all about not having air conditioning systems. Maybe it was all about not having daylight. A window, you know, electric lights. Um, it's just really interesting. And you look at uh, uh, a show that just um, came out on HBO called The Gilded Age. Okay. It's fabulous. And it's talking about this guy named uh, White, an architect that designed a house for this guy that called Russell, but it's really Vanderbilt. And it's McKim Mead and White. Okay. You know, it's crazy. And that's one of my my favorite architects and they were turn of the century this guy built this in the 1800s and you look down the street and the patterns of all the row houses that were the brownstones and just the patterns of the openings of the windows you know proportions it was just fantastic right and so why was that why yeah. is it so horrible now and it was so beautiful then i just yeah i love all the detail that you would see crown molding and etches and yeah. you know it, all that stuff used to exist and it just doesn't now i think it's because it's too expensive to produce. It's maybe. the patterns. It's not. It's not the embellishment. Mm, I um, see. Because, for instance, if you look at the row housing we did at Kettner Row, um, and that was built in '96. Okay. And except for the ones that they butchered, this the building's still pretty. This the building's still nice, and there's you know no detail on it. Mm -hmm. It's nominal, but it's it's refined and it's simple and it's elegant. Right. And that's what they had on all these other buildings and they didn't necessarily have all the gilding that you're sort of referring to gilded age kind of ironic i said that but um it was just done right you know there's a building downtown i called the tutti frutti building okay it's on beach india and um cruises through to the street to the east and they have like seven foot doors on the storefront mm -hmm. and that's chasing the dollar because they were cramming one more level of building in the Type 5 building. And it's just horrible. You know, turn of the century, if you had something under 14 feet for the bottom floor, yeah. you'd be short. Right. So, anyway. Yeah. Well, these days, like, where do you draw inspiration from? Because, like, we've determined and, and talked about, like, you do have a particular design language or at least yeah. aesthetic language. Anything not related to architecture you pull from? Obviously, you're a huge car guy, which we'll get to. Yeah, the automobile thing is pretty interesting. Um, when we go into a project, I'm looking at the high-rise over here. It was important to me to achieve certain um, ideas. 
So what is it like, oh, let's draw a whole bunch of plans and okay, that'll be great. No, I really want to have a building that has a smooth skin on one side mm -hmm. that becomes a simple monolithic piece. So that was sort of the driving force of it. And then it evolves and it kind of goes out in the left field and that creates something. Then you kind of try to bring it back to center field with the smooth skin. Then it goes, you know, the, you, you do some other things to it. And eventually you find out that the first idea you had is the right idea, but you had to go to 20 other ideas to come back to the first idea. Hmm. Um, so if you look at, you know, architects, you asked about current architects. Um, if you look at like Gordon Bunshaft, it did some magic work back in the 40s and 50s and 60s for SOM. Um, he did the lever house. And, the, and so then that's the, if you look at it over and over and over and over and over again, it becomes subliminal and, and it sort of comes through your brain, from your eyes, through your brain, to your hand, and then it goes into the projects. Um, so there's, there's definitely some, just, what do you call that? Muscle reflex, muscle memory right. that drops that out. But if you ask me, hey, you should start a real firm and have you know, 30 employees and do 30 projects a year, I couldn't do it. Right. I can do one building well a year. Can do two buildings almost as well a year and past that I just don't have the bandwidth and the mental bandwidth or the, the design bandwidth or something um, interesting yeah so it, how would you describe your managerial style then because obviously you do have to oversee your employees the, the monster office of me and Matthew with Rob that just showed up and um, well I think you can't design in a democracy someone has to be the dictator making the final call you can't politic around well you know I don't, I don't know if we like this or that or it's going the wrong way the right way um but there's a synergy that happens between me and matthew where he has i've learned you know to, to, to be passive he says i want to you know do this and this okay great we'll do it and then that's remember we were trying to go down the center field and he drifts over to right field and then he sees when he gets there hmm, maybe not so much but maybe what he did influences something else which makes something else better Right, um, but I'm not interested in doing 15 schemes on a project. We, we do we do something that we think's right, and we do it, and it's efficient. Sure, is there a, any sort of common method and or order of operations, if you will, when it comes to your creative process that may be say unique to you or or your business? Well, what we don't have is that we don't have the interface of the client. So, if we're working on a project we ask the questions and we answer them. Mm. I can't imagine doing a whole bunch of work, showing it to a client, having to do the rah-rah, you know, the, the, the rah-rah pictures and the, and the videos and all the other graphics that go with that waste of time. You're a car guy, which I find to be interesting because cars are mechanical and buildings rarely are. I mean, other than like doors and things. They're both handmade. Both handmade. Both Did you ever think are. you'd be a car designer? No. No, 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 not a chance. To be a real car designer, you have to have what I call the happy hand. Okay. Which is, you know, the graphic ability. I can draw, I can do watercolors, but I can't. In architecture school, there's one or two guys or girls or whatever in every class that just has that ability to draw. That's right. amazing. And that's what a car designer has. Mm. Well, you're a big Porsche guy. Yeah. You drove the 73 RSN today. Yep. What is it about Porsche that attracts you to their brand primarily? 
Well, I would say originally it was the 356, which I find one of the most beautiful forms of a car. And then they transformed the 350, 356 into the 911, and then it kept going. And um, I think the car for the value is tremendous. Um, let's say it's 98% and a Ferrari's 100% as far as like performance. Who cares? Right. I mean, past 80%, it's all the same anyway. Mm. I'm not going 200 miles an hour on this road. Um, and I just always loved the Porsche design. The Ferrari's a little, you know, flamboyant. Lamborghini's a little flamboyant. Um, Maserati has always sort of been not not as good. Um, and that's the newer cars. But going back to older cars, um, the Ferrari's the most beautiful for sure. There's yeah, no question about that. Gotcha. It's Italian design. Maserati's Italian design. Lamborghini, sort of. I had one of the first Lamborghinis ever made. They had awkward lights, but the design is beautiful. Right. Um, the German stuff is so complicated. We have a 300 SL that we're um, doing a cosmetic restoration on right now. And it's just, it's brutal how complicated this thing is. Um, Are you going to the Concorde this year? Uh, well, Pebble Beach? Pe Pebble yeah, Beach, yeah. Yeah, we're taking our, um, our Frua one-off um, Maserati Spider. Amazing. This year. Yeah. Yeah, so. Well, but back to the RSs. Are you more drawn to the '70s for any reason because it's the 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 initial like versus say like a 997 RS or like a four liter RS that's like you know iconic in its own right? Um, hard hard to tell. I mean, the the '60s and '70s had some pretty cool colors. Um, that's why I'm drawn to that. Uh, you know, I'm all over the board. I probably own 20 Porsches. Um, I currently have a Carrera GT, which I find magic. What color? Um, basalt black. Nice. So it's, it keeps pretty clean. Um, do I like the RS? Yeah, I like the RS. Do I love the RS? I love my 300 SL Roadster. I love my Carrera GT. I love my Lusso. I love my Maseratis. I love my Corvettes. Do I love the RS? Let me keep telling you. No. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a 911 that has a souped-up motor in it. And why is that three times the price of a 911? It isn't. Right. Is it magic and beautiful? It's kind of cool looking. Mine's Chartreuse, one of 34 made. So I chased after that, just had the car restored. Um, it's cool. It performs well. I'm more interested in beautiful things than performance-based Right, things. the fastest thing. Right, right. Yeah. Didn't you have an orange one? I had a signal yellow, which or is signal yellow, orange, yeah, yeah it was just, which yeah. is orange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Signal yellow is orange. Signal red is tangerine. Right. And signal <laughs> orange is yellow or whatever. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They got some cool colors. Yeah. And they're cool cars. So um, 70s. I love it. Yeah. A little ducktail. Canepa uh, has one of the original eight um, for sale right now. The, the mule cars, as they call it. Really? Pretty cool looking. Has cowhide in the inside, which is crazy with the hair on it and stuff. And. Anyway, how did the, the, the Ferrari Lusso come about? You got a, a 250 GT Lusso. Just always loved that car. That was my favorite car. So when we sold part of our portfolio in 2007, I think, 2008, um, I went and I purchased an Aston Martin DB9, um, which was at that point my, one of my favorite cars ever. Beautiful car. Yeah. Um, Porsche, I purchased the Carrera GT and then a Lusso I bought out of London because I've always coveted that. All in 2009. 2008, maybe. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's good timing is my point. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Lusso had just started to move. It moved from 200000 to 400000 Yeah. Like in a year. 
and then they sort of stopped and kind of calmed down a little bit. Um, well, the Carrera GT, I mean, crashed that. That was smart. And then the Aston Martin had some defect and it was rattling forever. So they ended up taking that car back. But I had that Lusso. Um, I was not informed if the engine was an incorrect engine. Um, Joe Seifert, who was a, a famous Porsche racer, yeah, um, he was probably the greatest guy that would race in the rain. Um, originally owned the car, so it was kind of cool, but it didn't have the proper motor on it. And a guy was going to pay me the big money, like $700,000 for that car without the proper motor. So I sold that. And then I always coveted getting another one. And I bought that one two years ago at Amelia Island, exactly two years. I was going to ask where you got it. Yeah, yeah on an auction. And it's an all-original car that's got some horrible red Earl Scheib repaint on it. Um, so we're actually, by the end of this month, we'll have that stripped. And we'll be painting it the Grigio Fuma, which is smoke gray, metallic color. Gorgeous. Smoking such a cool car. Absolutely. Who does your paint work? Um, we used to use um, Steve Beckman out of Orange County, and now it's SoCal Paint, and they did fabulous job on the on 300 SL. Oh, that's great. The 38 Lancia, special car. Super special. Got can, it here. Can you talk about its story? Yeah, I got I got that car. Um, so Paul Hagman is um, one of my close buddies that helps me get cars, and um, we talked about Pebble trying to invest in show. Um, eventually, and you typically need a, a pre-war um, car to do that, and a big car, an important car, and like a one-off. Right. And he found this. He found this Lancia uh, Astura, is what it's called. And Porto was the designer, which is a French guy. He was actually a dentist. Um, that was the designer within the Porto company. Uh, so we purchased that car, and it got here, and it didn't have enough oil in it, and ate its engine. So oh, drove no. that about 150 miles. That was that. No synchro mesh, kind of weird. Anyway, it's up in San Francisco getting the engine rebuilt right now. Oh, my goodness. Um, it's probably two or three years from Pebble. Um, but the crazy thing is this year, 2022, we have a Maserati Zagato built car that's I've covered it my entire life. Finally had enough money to buy it, bought it. And we were runner-up to best of show. Incredible. I mean, Zagato, what more can you say? What is it about uh, Maserati that you like? They made A6Gs. They made 62 of them, um, 61 of them in 1956. And um, that was my first restoration car. I had an Alamano that I bought um, out of London at an auction, and it got here and it was a pile of junk. So we restored it, went to Pebble Beach, we won our class, and um, then I started collecting these cars. So um, I've had four of them. Um, I currently have three. The A6G model, which is that's the chassis model, and they had different designers on top. Okay. Um, I bought um, the most important um, all original one out of Paris in '15, the Frua design. That was the Italian designer, and then bought the sister car of that one, which was a convertible, which is I think absolutely one of the most beautiful convertibles ever designed, ever. Right. Better than any Ferrari. Um, that's going to Pebble this year. Cool. And that's Frua also. So I got the brother and the sister, and then I've got the Zagato. So. It's just a niche that I've found um, that can distinguish me from other people, which is important, I think. Yeah. Like your art, you know, you talk about the architecture and the language. Well, this has distinguished me for that. Right. So we have these cool three Frua cars. Really, well, I'm sorry, three A6G cars, two Frua, one Zagato. So Spike Ferriston refers to it as the taproot car. Like, what started it all for you? Like, what got you into cars to begin with? Uh, my dad had an MGA when we were growing up. Cool. And then I bought an MGA and um, had four of those. 
Nice. Um, and they worked out well, and they were inexpensive, and they're great cars, and they're cool cars, and you know, kind of like white walls, which is kind of a '70s sort of black guy thing. Um, and my dad had Cadillacs because he was from England, and that was the deal. When you came to the United States, you were established, you were somebody, you bought a Cadillac. You could never afford a new one, but in the 60s, that was the real deal. You, you would made it if you had a Cadillac. See, I love the white walls of like a 58 Corvette or like the old yep. XJ140s or something like that. White walls or are XK, beautiful. excuse me, XK140s. Got white walls um, in the 300 SL. That's great. Is there a car you'd never sell? Well, I think every car is always for sale, but never sell. I hope I don't have to sell um, my Frua Spider, my Zagato car, and then my 356. That's amazing. That was the first car I ever bought was the, um, the 356. Mice and Blue, 1959. Amazing. You're no stranger to pattern pants. Yeah. What got you into fashion? Um, I don't know. I think it's just something innate either like or you don't like always yeah. kind of like clothes um even like back in high school when i used to work i used to spend my money on clothes um trina turk stuff is the stuff i like a lot oh really i have clothes made but trina turk is out of um, southern california yeah and, uh, in palm springs i and used to stuff... sell trina turk in raleigh seriously i did uh, how'd you sell that well, I, I managed a multi-brand boutique and we carried that line and it was like... I, Mr. I Turk. Yeah, I want to say it was right when they were releasing Men's to start, but I can't remember how long she's done that. Yeah, uh, well, her husband passed away. He was a photographer. Right. Um, I haven't been Mr. to the Turk. store in Palm Springs, but... I Love that place. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, super cool. Super, they did a nice job. She's really cool. Trina's really cool. She, um, we went to um, Leo Marmel's wedding and it was out there and... And then they were part of that because they, Marmel Radziner had restored her house. I think they call it the ship. Okay. Um, super, super cool. It looks like a, like an ocean liner kind of thing. Yeah. I got to meet her there and, and then um, her husband. Um, but, you know, does cool stuff and, and um, very slimming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> do you see yourself still working late into your life? Like kind of like Frank Lloyd Wright did or do you, do you I, think you know, I, that's a really good question right now I mean the stress level is pretty high um, I'm 60 and it's really funny when you're 59 <laughs> you, you're always thinking of the future and you're 60 you start counting the days it's kind of weird that happened to me at 39 39 well <laughs> move on up to the you know the 40s and 50s you'll get it right um, yeah I think you're invincible until you get to 60 and then at 60 you start going well if I you know mess up here and lose that there that won't work out so well so yeah i hope to you know i hope to be working uh, the good news is i've got my cars yeah which you know we we george and i are putting back the 300 sl and i really enjoy that and enjoy the people i've met that do the restoration we've got two fabulous guys up in vancouver that are working on the two cars rob mike and then their their painter ian cool um and they educate me so it's just a new adventure right so architecture yeah we'll see how it goes i mean the Everything's in such disarray, and you have no idea where everything's going right now, but I really want to build the high-rise, and then we just went into escrow on a house um, on the ocean right? Um, that I always coveted. So those are my last two real big dreams, and my big dreams may morph into something else later, but that's currently what I have. So you're not worried about the cliffs? No, we're way above the cliffs, and we're 40 feet back from the bluff edge and uh, you know, all the other goodies, but no, Great. it's just unbelievable. I grew up in Manhattan Beach, right? 
Yeah. Always love the ocean. Sure. And La Jolla is pretty. I still like, I think the best place in, in San Diego is Coronado. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like Mayberry RFD. Everything's beautiful. Everybody's taking care of everything. Everybody it's like cares. the Truman Show. <laughs> it's like the Truman Show. That's, yeah. That's what I but always But better. Thought. Only better. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Speaking of Manhattan Beach, are you tight with Matt Jacobson? I know Matt. Yeah. He's, well, I knew Matt. Let's put it this way. Car guy, lives in a special house. Car, yeah, he's a VW guy. Oh, yeah. Strangely enough. Yeah. A watch guy. Yep. I was going to ask you, are you into watches? A little bit. I've got Panerai's, probably seven or eight Panerai's, and I've got um, uh, Vacheron, yep. which is the um, the rotated watch. Am I an expert in watches? No. I just like what I like, right? I'm not... Like in the, I'm into cars, and I understand that. The watches, I don't so much. But um, Oh, interesting. And, and Matt has a lot in her house, I think. Um, I, th- I believe you're right. Manhattan Beach. No, I, yeah. haven't, I haven't seen that. Have yeah. you been there? I haven't been to his house, no. But I used to work for James Purse in Malibu and met Matt back then, but he probably has no idea who I am. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> but, he remembers me sort of because I have a haberdasher, my friend Ian, up in um, L.A. knows him. Okay. Um, so that's interesting because he was uh, you know, a friend of mine in high school. Oh, funny. Tennis. He played tennis. I didn't play tennis. Right. I lived on 12th Street next to Uncle Bill's. Oh, nice. Pancake House. Oh, yeah. hell yeah. I love yeah. Uncle Bill's. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was then. And then, and uh, it's kind of crazy because I was watching the um, uh, the Davis um, documentary yesterday. Yeah, and sure. they were talking about Santana. I got a little Santana story. So when I was... The guitarist. Yeah. Santana. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Carlos Santana. M- musician. Yeah. 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 So um, I was walking down 12th Street to go to the ocean. Wow. Eighth grade, yeah, and there was a limo there, and the limo driver standing outside, and and I said, "What's going on? Who's that? Who's that? Oh, do you know who Carlos Santana is, man?" <laughs> I said, "No, I have no idea who that is." Boom, he popped out, said hi, wait, shake my hand. He says, "Give me a buck." So the guy gives him a dollar bill. He signs it, Carlos Santana. Do I have that? No, someone lost it, but that's a cool story. Oh no, <laughs> yeah, very cool story. So. Um, I see a set of golf clubs in the corner. Yeah. Are you getting out? No. I, you know, unfortunately I, I get out just enough to love it and hate it. So. Well, we'll yeah. have to play sometime. I break a hundred. That's great. Yeah. If I you don't play, I mean. I unfortunately help. can hit a ball pretty well. Well, that's the thing. I mean, if you never play, it's like, but we're always like a victim of our own expectations anyway. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like playing with good guys like you. Yeah, we'll it's have always to, fun to watch. I'm always looking for people to play with because all of my friends who play are all over the country. They don't live in San Diego. So. Okay. Well, just wrapping up here, is there anything else you want to talk about or promote? What you got in the works? Um, you know, I think I want to make just a global statement about this housing crisis we're having. And it's pretty simple. And I don't know why they don't understand, they being uh, the municipalities or what have you. It's a supply-demand thing. It's basic economics. It's like, you know, freshman year... Econ 101, if I have 100 cups of coffee and there's 500 people that want it, guess what? Price is going up. Price is going up. (laughs) If I have 1,000 cups of coffee that are hot and there's 500 people that want it, guess what? That's right. Price is going down. And I'm going to have to unload some real cheap. So let me make a whole bunch of coffee. Don't tell me that I have to um, file 15 permits to go get the beans and then grind the beans as another permit and then to get the water as another permit and the cups another permit. Just let me go to the store, get my cups of coffee, make coffee, and everybody's all fired up. The city can't get that. They don't understand that. They want to have a committee and a committee to talk about the committee to see what that other committee's doing. And um, 
it's never going to change unless they get their shit together and just right. say, go build Yeah. for a year. Build yeah. anywhere you want. Build anything you want. That's what I say. I don't care if it's commercial zone, residential zone, any zone. Let me build housing. And that's not happening. Hmm. So it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jonathan, thanks for the time. You're welcome. Hey guys, Wesley here. If you liked what you heard, maybe tell a friend about the Standard H podcast. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show as it helps others discover this podcast. Shout out to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track, as well as to Clear Audio for the noise-canceling headphones. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care.